You are listening to the Lighter Side Show audio podcast with Jamie Butler, the everyday medium, produced by the Lighter Side Network. Visit and subscribe to thelightersidenetwork.com for hundreds of video episodes exploring wholeness living, energy work, trans channeling, and more. The Lighter Side Network, where the everyday meets the extraordinary. Hi, Lumineers. Welcome to the Lighter Side Show podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Butler, the everyday medium. And I have with me today, Marco M. Party, who has done 22 years of teaching in anthropology and death and dying at the college level and spent 23 years at CDC. He also has a blog for the last six years at mparty.com. Lumineers, you definitely want to be typing that into the search engine right now. You guys have been asking for someone who goes deep who uses the language that will elevate you, here's your man, Marco Party. And today, we're going to talk about the, <laughs> I know what I want to name the, <laughs> the show, but Marco came up with another one. Go ahead, Marco, introduce the show. <laughs> well, I thought it was appropriate to say, why should we listen to Jamie? <laughs> it's... I didn't want to put my name in there because we're going to talk about the basis of what appears to be a conflict between science and religion. Yeah? Yes, that's yes. going to be a large part of it, yes. So you think that people need to be paying attention a lot more to what I'm saying? Yes, I do. Uh, but I, of course, would broaden that to say that uh, the actual area of mediums, uh, psychics, and so on... Uh, is, is not something to simply be ignored, um, and I'll show you the reasons why. Oh, we're about to get into that heavily lumineers, so stay tuned. Before we dive into that, I want to let you guys know what's going on over here. At the Lighter Side Network, we do have some new shows, so please head in that direction and check them out. We have A Handful of Stars with Helene Saucedo, and it's all about palmistry. Darshna Patel is coming out with season three of Enlighten Up. We have Dr. Crystal Jones, who's doing Sanctuary, the podcast. And we have our own show called Insights, where we have a different host for every episode. It is turning out to be an epic summer here in the Lighter Side Network. I am also preparing for Luma Summit this October. So please head over to jamiebutlermedium.com and look at the events and workshops and check out what's happening for Luma Summit. And for those of you up in New York City, I will see you soon. I'll be there at the end of July. Okay, Marco, now that we have the housekeeping notes set aside, I want to know more of why you think it's so important to not dismiss psychic, the paranormal, metaphysical. Can we mm -hmm. go that far? Sure. Okay. The floor is yours. I'm, I'm all ears. Okay. The first thing I think we need to do is to establish and clarify some terms. Okay. And we can begin with the term science. Uh, when talking about uh, you, Jamie, and others uh, who practice as you do, I often hear uh, people say, oh, that's not scientific. Well, that's quite incorrect. Ooh. Uh, and, and certainly it betrays uh, a misunderstanding of what science actually is. Science is not simply a matter of uh, collecting what is and describing it. If you want to do that, be a librarian. They know what <laughs> is. 
Instead, science is a process of uh, developing questions uh, that go beyond what we currently know so that we can enhance our knowledge. You sure that's not an attorney? Well, in fact, uh, there are some parallels between the legal profession and science that we need to explore, uh, which we will in a minute. Oh, really? I was just teasing. Okay. When we look at the nature of evidence. Okay. (laughs) So we sometimes forget, uh, since the world seems to move so quickly, that science is a relatively new term. Uh, In fact, the people who uh, developed and practiced the study of such things as physics and chemistry and biology and astronomy and so forth and so on were known throughout their history as philosophers, which is why we today still award the degree Doctor of Philosophy. That ought to occur to someone to to question that. (laughs) Why are these people getting uh, a Doctor of Philosophy in chemistry? Oh, my God. Did you hear my mouth? Like, I have no words. My jaw is open. Yes. Well, some countries such as uh, the UK and Canada have advanced to the point where they are awarding Doctor of Science degrees. But the United States is very, very slow to adopt that thinking. Uh, But it is an example of how people misunderstand and misuse the term science and uh, confuse it with uh, simply cataloging So Hmm. let's understand uh, another uh, principle, one which I feel I discovered somewhere around the age of eight. Uh, That principle is very simple. That principle is no one ever hears a word you say. Oh. Oh, Marco. People hear what they tell themselves you said. Yeah. People hear what they want to hear. Well, it may not be what they want to hear, but they tell themselves what they think you said, not what you said. Okay? So the the important point here is that when we're talking with someone, the first thing we need to do uh, is to establish, as the old saying goes, where's this person coming from? Where's their, what, what's their framework? for how they interpret their experience, their experience in this case being hearing you speak. And so I like to distinguish among three categories of thinking. One is irrational, two is non-rational, and three is rational. I'll give you an example of each. Okay. Um, Very often when person A and person B get into a discussion, and person A disagrees with what person B is saying, they go on and on with their disagreement and so forth until finally person B says to person A, oh, you're just being irrational. Mm -hmm. Does that Mm -hmm. sound familiar? Yes. (laughs) Well, that is a misuse of the term irrational. Okay, explain. It's a misuse because irrational means you can't make any sense out of what you're hearing. Clearly, person B can make sense and says to himself, well, this person is not agreeing with me. Okay, so that's an inappropriate use of the term irrational. The best example of irrational speech is what we call glossolalia. Glossolalia is better known as speaking in tongues. Right. Found among some religious practitioners who engage in a or slip into a temporary psychosis. 
So the speaker himself of glossolalia has no idea what he's saying. The listener has no idea what the speaker is saying. The speaker of glossolalia cannot repeat what he has just said. Uh, it's simply an irrational utterance. Correct. Okay? That's, yeah. that's irrational. Well, you don't hear that usually in arguments. No, you don't. All right. So <laughs> let's, let's move then to the non-rational versus the rational okay. way of thinking. And I'll give you an example. Let's say that uh, a car has crashed into a tree and the uh, driver is dead at the wheel. A rational investigator goes to the scene Mm -hmm. examines the car, examines the tree, uh, notes that there appears to have been a high-speed impact against the tree, given the damage to the car and the fatality. Uh, so we can establish that as point D, let's say, D for death, if you like. Then that rational investigator backs up to point C, which is the circumstances and says, oh, let's see now. It was a rainy night, twisting, slippery road. Mm -hmm. Okay, those are the circumstances. Uh, then the rational investigator backs up to point B, which we can say is behavior, and it appears that the individual was going too fast for conditions. Uh, the rational investigator then backs up to point A, a, which is antecedents, and finds out that the person uh, behind the wheel was just at a party mm. with his girlfriend and had a falling out, a serious falling out with the girlfriend. Uh, there was uh, significant drinking going on at the party, and uh, due to the falling out, or perhaps as a consequence of it, uh, got into his car and raced away from the, the scene. Uh, apparently, uh, having had a few drinks and uh, toxicology, of course, would show that. But the point is that after going through those steps involved in the rational investigation, every step that we've examined can be independently verified. Mm -hmm. Some other investigator can come along tomorrow and find the same circumstances. Some other investigator can come along next year or 10 years from now and find the same circumstances. So that's all objectively recorded. Now, how does that contrast with non-rational? A non-rational investigator at the scene would go through exactly the same steps, identify exactly the same stages that we've just gone through, reach the exact same conclusion, but would add, oh, so that's how God chose to bring him home. Oh, that's that's so, not where I thought you were going. So, okay. so that's, that part there is the non-rational part. This isn't to say it's right or wrong. It's, it isn't to say it's good or bad. It's simply to say it's of a different order. So the non-rational material, such as the utterance, mm -hmm. oh, so that's how God chose to bring him home, 
that non-rational material is not objectively verifiable. We cannot Correct. say it's true. We cannot say it's false. The importance of this is that when a person frames their, their readiness for perceiving what it is you're saying. Would you call that their belief system or no? Well, some people such as myself don't have belief systems. I define belief very stringently. I say belief is accepting without proof. All right, now there, there is an inherent problem in that, and I recognize that problem. The problem being that any premise must rest upon an unproven proposition. That is, if you're going to investigate anything, you have to accept that something is a given and depart from that given as if we've agreed that it exists. Right. So there are some issues with that, but I try to uh, avoid the, the concept of belief in any way I possibly can. So could the readiness be the, the lens at which they like to see things through? Yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. And, and the subtle part of this, and perhaps the damaging part of this, is that few people recognize that they're even wearing that lens. Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay. So now let's look at what constitutes, we've been speaking about evidence, let's look at what constitutes evidence. And I mentioned a while ago that um, the legal profession has some corollaries with the scientific community. Uh, in fact, when we look at uh, evidence, we can look at the legal profession and we can see examples in which, uh, say in a trial, um, someone, some observer of the trial, uh, or even some participant, such as a prosecutor or a defense attorney, says that's just circumstantial evidence and, and claims that somehow the evidence is weak because it's circumstantial. Well, let's have a look at that concept, circumstantial. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out there are only two kinds of evidence that are not circumstantial. One is an admission on the part of the perpetrator, complete with information that no one else could have known. Okay, people admit to crimes all the time. <laughs> but they don't have the details of it. But they don't have the details. They're simply there for some particular reason, which varies from person to person, uh, but uh, they're not, in fact, the perpetrator. When someone comes forward and says, I did it, this is how, and by the way, at the scene, you'll notice that thus and so and thus and so, and no one else knows that, then we can say, well, that's not circumstantial evidence. That's, in fact, prima facie evidence. And the other uh, non-circumstantial evidence is uh, multiple unimpeachable witnesses. And so when uh, John Kennedy was shot, mm -hmm. I happened to be watching live television at the time. I was sitting watching. I was home on leave from the military and was watching live television at the time when John Kennedy was shot. Uh, there were millions of people watching that broadcast. There were thousands of people in attendance and, and hundreds of people right there at the scene close enough to see it happen. So there's no question that 
John Kennedy was shot. Whether Oswald did it, that's another matter. Mm. But we're talking about, uh, is there evidence that he was shot? And in fact, the evidence is right there. Some people have said since then, oh, it was all a big hoax and so on. This is kind of like Trumpism in the past. <laughs> um, everything's a hoax, according to these people. So when we look at these concepts of evidence, um, what we need to examine when it comes to uh, the world of psychic phenomena and mediums and so on is not just, say, the interaction between you and me when we sit down, let's say, for a sitting. What we need to examine is what kinds of supportive information arise in that session that you could not possibly have known and I could not possibly have known at the time. In other words, what I'm trying to rule out here is obvious. What I'm trying to rule out is is that you somehow picked up on cues from me, mm-hmm. which is a common criticism. Oh, the medium is very skilled at reading people and can zero in on certain cues that the sitter um, may subconsciously give off. And so it's, it's uh, the so-called cold reading. If I can have a session with you in which uh, you tell me that you're, you're talking to my brother, let's say, and I am sitting here thinking, I talked to my brother two hours ago, and he was just fine. So I don't know how it is that Jamie's talking to my brother, but I'll just sit and listen to what she has to say. <laughs> so kind. Uh, <laughs> then, I, then I go home. The, the meeting concludes, and I go home and find a message waiting for me mm-hmm. that my brother was just killed in the car accident uh, while, in fact, I was sitting talking to you. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. So... That kind of uh, information, which could not have been known to me at the time, uh, but apparently somehow was known to you, is evidence that, in fact, you are accessing reality in a way that I can't. What about the evidence that a reader can obtain, such as names or dates or things that the sitter already knows? They have a whole new style now called evidential mediumship, where you have to hit X amount of marks, names, dates, and so forth, for it to be what they call a real reading. I'm uncomfortable. I'm I'm sure that that sort of uh, standard has its place, particularly in light of so much criticism that that is levied at you. But I'm uncomfortable with this establishment of some kind of checklist that you have to you have to hit hit all these points in order to be considered valid. I, I just don't accept that. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I was just curious where you were standing from it, but me too. Yes. So we have then uh, a a a circumstance in which historically and even currently we see a an apparent conflict between uh, religion, and when I use that term religion, I use it in a very specific sense, because not all religions are, by any means, are against 
the idea of psychic phenomenon, mediumship, and so on. Uh, but we see it most pronouncedly among the more fundamentalist um, mm-hmm. variants of religion here in in the United States in particular. Uh, we see this conflict coming out of religion, and we see a conflict coming out of science. And it almost looks as if they're both working from the same play sheet uh, at times when they're criticizing uh, mediumship and, and other forms of paranormal phenomena. Um, yet they, they seem to go after each other, and um, there is a, a reasonable reason to examine why they seem to go after each other. The interesting aspect of religion uh, in, in its involvement with this is that while they base so much of their appeal on the existence of a spiritual um, nature of spiritual being to ourselves and some kind of afterlife and uh, all that kind of thing, while, while they do that, uh, when they then deny that we can access that, it makes you wonder, well, why are they, mm. why, what are they so concerned about? Well, the, the concern, it seems to me, if we look historically uh, at the development of religion, particularly in the West, the concern goes all the way back to the origins of what is now commonly called Christianity. And we see that Christianity arose largely as what came to be an empirical force, that is, the Holy Roman Empire, Mm -hmm. and the development of the church was a development that was based largely on the establishment of a hierarchy that the common man had to go through people of a higher rank and those people of a higher rank had to go through people of a higher rank still, and so on and so on until you get to this one individual that came to be called the Pope. Um, now, in establishing that hierarchy, in the, in the very early years, there was an alternative approach uh, to spirituality and to um, self-development and, and uh, moral living and so on which came to be called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism comes from the Greek gnosis, or knowing. And it simply means that you don't need uh, an intermediary, such as a priest or a cardinal or a bishop or a pope or an archbishop and all of the various other ranks and hierarchies that uh, have established themselves in this growing empire that came to be called the church. And the same applies in, obviously this sounds very Catholic, but the same applies in the non-Catholic religions where you see the deacons and the mm-hmm. ministers and the, the various ranks that they have in the other systems as well. So the, the, the Gnostic tradition was a significant threat to the growing church. And as a consequence, we know what happened. The church did everything in its power to kill off these individuals and their ideas. Yes. Um, 
so this this conflict does seem to be very curious as as an outsider one one looks at it and and wonders um how is it that people who espouse a spiritual existence want to take control over access to that spiritual existence and keep control and deny you, Jamie, and others like you, uh, access to that spiritual existence. Uh, it, that's an unresolved question. We don't yet have an answer to that, except to say it's a matter, it seems to be a matter of keeping power. In your opinion, do you think it's based on power? Yes, I do. Now, when it comes to science, this concept of power also applies, but in a slightly different way. With the process of science uh, in, in the establishment of what it is that we know, mm-hmm. we try to be as careful as possible to establish knowledge in such a way that, just like the example I gave you earlier of the objective uh, non-rational, or the objective rational investigator at the scene of the car accident, right? we try to establish it in such a way that, yes, it is defensible. We can show the evidence. It will be defensible tomorrow. It'll be defensible next year. It'll be defensible 10 years from now, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, if new evidence arises, then science is very, very quick in many cases. Not all, unfortunately, <laughs> but in very quick in many cases to accept the new evidence and say, aha, okay, well, we've learned something new. And we add that to our body of knowledge. But the establishment of that body of knowledge is based on objectively establishing the evidence. Mm-hmm. So when, for example, science takes a hands-off approach to something like near-death experiences uh, or, or, or the variety of experiences associated with death, such as sympathetic death experiences, someone going with uh, someone who has died. Which is disappointing that they've approached it that way. Well, yes, it is, uh, but it's understandable as well. Because uh, what this appears to do in the scientific community, what this appears to do uh, is to open the door to the non-rational way of thinking. Right. Not irrational, but non-rational. Non-rational. Exactly. Yeah, we, let's, let's hopefully dispense with that irrational <laughs> altogether, uh, unless we plan on a little road trip to a revival tent or something. We can put that on the books, Marco, if you need it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but the, the point of this is that uh, science is, in my opinion, and, and I, I, certainly don't, I certainly don't indict all scientists for this, there, there is a growing multitude of scientists, well-established, competent scientists, who are exploring this very area of near-death experience, uh, this very area of out-of-body experience, uh, and all of the various forms associated with uh, this this area, including mediumship. Um, 
even uh, William James, the father of American psychology, devoted his entire career to the study of mediums. Really? And uh, he's one of my personal heroes, as a matter of fact. Um, so he took a lot of flack, obviously, for doing so and, and uh, has received a lot of criticism through the years since. Oh, what a shame. But I strongly suggest that if anyone is interested in understanding how the scientific community approaches uh, paranormal phenomena in a, in a productive and serious and competent way, they read William James. Noted. Thank you. I always learn something new about you every time I'm with you. Um, well, I'm possibly a little different than I was yesterday. <laughs> Just maybe. <laughs> and we call that time passing, I think. You want to go there? <laughs> no. That time is linear? <laughs> no. I know that argument. <laughs> we can uh, pretend, though. Yeah. So uh, I think the the point of of what appears to be this contrast or conflict between certain forms of religion and certain forms of science is an unfortunate conflict of one side fearing that the other side will gain power over it. Religion fearing that science will gain power over our minds, our frame of reference, how we interpret experience, and science feeling the same about religion, fearing that religion will come in and say, oh, so that's how God decided thus and so and thus and so. So if, for example, science allows religion to enter into questions such as abortion and uh, where does life begin? I think you can see the serious problems we're, yes. we're possibly heading for right there. Yes. Marco, this is such an interesting conversation. We're going to pause here and we're going to pick up with a part two. Remember, it's not woo-woo, it's true-true. The ideas expressed by guests and channeled guests on the Lighter Side Show podcast are not necessarily Jamie's personal beliefs. Information received from the Lighter Side Show podcast is not to be used as a substitute for medical or psychological advice. For up-to-date info on Jamie, visit jamiebutlermedium.com and subscribe to the Lighter Side Network, Lumineers. I'll see you there. The Lighter Side Network, where the everyday meets the extraordinary. Made with love by Jesse in Atlanta.